All right, this is the Michael Slate Show, and I'm your host, Michael Slate. Now, we have two important segments in today's show. First, we're going to be talking with Sansara Taylor, writer, revolutionary, and radio host on the U.S. defeat in Afghanistan. Then, at the back end of the show, we remember sociologist and author James Lowen, who died last week at the age of 79. Now, I interviewed Jim twice on the Michael Slate Show, and we'll be hearing him talk about the Confederacy and why people are lying when they pretend that the Civil War was not about the enslavement of human beings. So now let's hear my interview with Sansara Taylor, which was recorded earlier. Sansara Taylor, welcome. Hey, Michael. I'm so glad to be here with you. Yeah, yeah it's great. I was, I was actually counting on it, and then I was like so disappointed and didn't know she could make it. And then I see you walk in. I said, what the hell is she doing here? <laughs> well, and, uh, additionally, besides what we're going to talk about, which is right. very important, I have right. the great benefit of seeing you in person, <laughs> which is a treat, I have to say. Okay. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> now I'm stuck doing all these other things. Okay. We have a, we actually, we have a very, very heavy show for you today. You know? I want to start off with a very sharp point that's out there, which is it poses one of the main questions confronting all people who abhor fascism and in particular what's happening today in relation to, to this. You know, Revcom.us, who, who I'm writing for, who you write for, I don't even, I, although I don't write. See, I'm so, I'm so stuck. When I came here, I was mainly a writer. I know. And then it sort of went and went and went. I miss writing. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> but uh, not because I don't like this. I really love this. But I, I do miss writing, which I'm going to have to get back into. And it's, uh, the word is actually very, it's something that is really important to, I think, hum, human, human life. Okay. And anyway, so we're talking now in particular what's happening today in relation to this situation, I think the situation that we're in, you know, we want, I wanted to start off, like I said, was with a sharp point out there that poses one of the main questions confronting all people who abhor fascism, and in particular, what's happening today in relation to this. You put this question out, and what you, you're in two other, you're in two other stations, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You want to tell them what stations are? Yeah. So, I mean, just for everybody tuning in, two things to to help set a framework. One is we're going to mainly talk about Afghanistan today and the recent developments there. I know, Michael, you're going to you're going to bring <laughs> us into that, but I want to let people know what we're. I mean, it's momentous. Mm-hmm. And I'm like Michael said, my name is Sansara Taylor. I'm a writer for Revcom.us. And I'm the co-host of the RNL, the Revolution Nothing Less show, which broadcasts every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific on YouTube.com slash The Revcoms. And this is a show like the website Revcom.us that is dedicated to bringing alive the need for, the basis for an actual revolution in this country with the whole world in mind, a revolution that is rooted in the new communism and led by Bob Avakian, who forged the new communism, which really is a, a new framework for human emancipation that, I mean, we'll get into this, but right now you look at the nightmare confronting the people in Afghanistan. You look at the horrors that the U.S. has brought and that Islamic fundamentalism is intensifying there. You look all over the planet on fire, the droughts, the destruction to to the livability of this planet for our species and many others brought about by this system of capitalism, imperialism. This cries out for revolution, and that's what my life as a follower of the revolutionary leader, Bob Avakian, and a writer for Revcom.us and part of the Revolution Nothing Less show is dedicated to hastening and bringing about and to calling on others to be part of. So we'll get into all of that. But that's, mm-hmm. and oh, because you asked me and I neglected <laughs> to say, I also do a broadcast on WPFW in Washington, D.C. 
and WBAI up in New York. And the show is called We Only Want the World. It's on Tuesdays. And uh, Michael, when I first started doing radio, I was always on the phone with him asking for tips (laughs) and advice, and he was extraordinarily helpful. So I'm glad to be here with you now. Good. There. <laughs> I'm glad to see you. Well, you know, one of the things I, I think it's actually it's it's really important that people understand this thing that there's, you know, basically, look, there's something that's being posed to people. This, uh, you know, and, uh, there's a question of confronting all the people who abhor fascism, and in, there's a question that's confronting all the people that abhor fascism, you know, and in particular, what's happening today in relation to this. And you know, like you're saying, Revcom.us, who you write for, put this question out ver- out there very sharply. And I think it's really important because there's so much of people just wandering around the thing or making it, trying to make it seem a little bit, well, it's bad, but we'll be, you know, we can roll through it, you know, that kind of thing. We can go to the elections. We'll get mm-hmm. the right people in, you know. And there's, you know, you write for, for this and, and, and you put the question out there very sharply recently, which is where do the interests of humanity lie right now? You know, and it's something that people don't generally think about, but there is a, it's a very important question to be spoken to. Where do the interests of humanity lie? This is exactly the question that all of us need to be stepping up around right now because of what's, what's concentrated in that. So I thought maybe we could start talking about that now. Yeah, well, I think that is the, that is the most important question. You know, what, what's actually happening in the world to understand why it's going on, and then to ask the question, we're in relation to this, not my interest, me, 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 or not America's interest, my country, so-called, but the interests of humanity. So I think, you know, we're in the middle of this unfolding, humiliating defeat of the United States in Afghanistan. After 20 years of invasion, occupation, 38,000 bombs the U.S. dropped on Afghanistan, 12,000 drone strikes, Four presidencies sending troops and terror into that country. 20 years after this occupation was begun, the U.S. is withdrawing in a humiliating defeat. And you hear all these people talking, you know, Biden should have done it this way. He should have done it that way. We did this. We did that. And I want to just start by saying this defeat is a major monumental development in the world. It's going to have major repercussions for the people in Central Asia for the whole region in the Middle East. It's going to impact big power rivalry in the world between China, Russia, the United States. And this defeat of the U.S. and Afghanistan is entering into very sharply a bitter fight and divide throughout this society, including in the ruling powers and throughout society that is actually the conditions that we are in right now where revolution could be ripened. And It's really important not to stay on the surface. Oh, should we have done this yesterday or this this week or what happens tomorrow? First of all, there is no we between us, the masses of humanity, and them, the rulers and military occupiers of the United States. That's a we that we should banish from our thoughts. Their interests are not our interests. This is your point on where are the interests of humanity. And B, we have to look beneath the surface. That's your old title of your old show, beneath (laughs) the surface, not just the surface events day to day. But why was the U.S. there? What does it mean that it was defeated? Why is it a good thing the United States has been defeated? And also, what needs to be brought forward to wrench humanity out of the nightmare where it's being forced to choose between imperialist occupation, terror, and domination, and something that's the Dark Ages mirror of that in the Taliban and the Islamic fundamentalist forces, which is also a nightmare. We need another way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier, and it's actually, you know, that's the thing that actually really struck me in some of the stuff that you've written and some of the stuff that I've, you know, I know we've talked about some of this, and 
it is in fact that it's a horror for the masses of people here, you know, here and, and all over the world. And and when you look at you look at what's actually you know, when they, you talk about a situation that's extremely rare and holds the possibility of major change in the world, that's a change that could be one way or the other. You know, and it's something that people, I don't think people get that enough, you know, that, yes, we can have, you know, we can be out there and fighting like hell to revolution and to change the society. But there's also the people who are on the other side who actually are working pretty damn heavy. And and right now it's it's very heavy because I never thought I would see this in a certain sense, you know, and then maybe it's just, you know, being foggy or something. But, you know, you always think about the big scenario that all the people that are sort of the Nazis, you know, would be Nazis, they're winning or they're doing this, they're doing that. And you look now and you look and see what's happened in, in relation to the where those people are, where that grouping of Nazis are. And then you see, when you see that, that they're actually tumbling to a certain extent, and you have this whole other group that's growing up. And it, when you look at this, you have those two things that I'm still chewing on. But you also have this need for people who aren't part of those things, but who are out there and don't maybe don't know where do they go now? What do they do? And that's extremely important. That's one of the things I keep thinking about now when I started to show out. This is what that was one of the things I mainly wanted to do. You know, now, of course, I have all these other things, you know, you, you want to do music, you want to do this and that. But that that was the central and it remains the central thing for what we're trying to do here. And I think it's something that we have to be able to figure out, you know, because it's. You need people, yeah. you know, and it's not enough to say, well, if you do it, they will come. You know, that's mm-hmm. not that's not it. But we need to actually figure out how is this going to happen? And I think that's one of the things that the work of Baba Vicky and the work of the, his stuff has been phenomenal in terms of what actually needs to be done. But the, then there's still a struggle to bring people into this. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, first... The United States went into Afghanistan. I just want to I want to take us back. This yeah, a lot of people think the Afghanistan war was the good war. And it wasn't. You know, from the very moment within hours of 9/11 when when Al-Qaeda flew airplanes into the World Trade and the Pentagon and took the lives of 3,000 innocent people, which was a horrific act. But from the second that happened, hours after Donald Rumsfeld, who was then the Secretary of State, said this. He said, "Go massive sweep it all up, things related and not. That is him right there telling you that they were, they launched what they called a war on terror, but really it was a war for empire, for U.S. global domination. And their idea was that they had a whole axis of evil. They had a whole host of countries they were going to roll on through, sew up the Middle East, lock in their domination, construct pliant U.S.-backed regimes that would, that would anchor in their domination of the strategic area. And then they'd go to North Korea, they'd go into Iran, they'd go other places. And it was never about their claims. It was, they said, they're going to liberate women. That was never about liberating women. It was never about bringing democracy. The United States is a patriarchal country that where abortion rights is hanging by a thread. Women are, we just had four years of rule by somebody who bragged about sexually assaulting women. This is a country that has got misogyny coursing through it. They wouldn't go there, and and especially through the U.S. military, they did not go there for the people. They went there and used that as a cover and played a lot of people, including a lot of feminists, a lot of woke people, a lot of so-called progressives, to think that Afghanistan was a good war. It was not. And it is very good for humanity that the United States, the greatest purveyor of terror in the world, of destruction and torture and occupation, and U.S.-backed coups, 10 million people the United States has killed since the end of World War II. 
That's huge. It is very good this power was defeated. That's number one. Number two, and we'll talk about it. That does not mean it was good the Taliban won. I want to talk about that in a minute. But I do want to say to your point about how does that enter into or how could that enter into the possibility for revolution in this country, which is what humanity needs. I see that in two ways. Number one, you actually see they are not all powerful. Every time you talk about revolution, people say, well, you know, a lot of people are not with it. But some people say, yeah, we probably do need a revolution, but that's never going to happen. Look at how powerful they are. Well, that power has limits. They are very good at knocking over a regime, but they are not very good at pacifying and winning over a population that is aroused against them. And there are profound lessons in that for revolution. They can be defeated. But two, it's very, very heavy right now that in the face of this major defeat, the rulers of this country, the different factions that dominate the ruling structures of this country have not come together and say, well, we have to rally to the larger interests of U.S. empire. Rather, this too is becoming a huge part of the bitter fight going on in this country. It is, you know, we saw the, the attempt at a coup on January 6th, the insurgency attempt uh, in the Capitol. We saw Trump trying to stay in office. Well, I saw Trump on Hannity this week, earlier this week, as the U.S. is still trying to helicopter its people out of, their, out of Kabul. And, you know, it's, it's very unprecedented for a former president to come on and speak about and critique what the current president is doing, nonetheless, in the middle of this major international crisis. And he came out and basically went frontally after Biden and said, he, Trump is, I could have done it better. Basically, Biden is illegitimate. He called this the greatest error that the U.S. has ever made. And he is using every part of this not to bring the country together and, and defend its its unified ruling class interests in the world. He is using it and and the fascist Republicans are using it to tear down the what a presidency they see as illegitimate and to further their whole attempt to bring back their fascist their fascist power in this country, to consolidate fascism in this country. And what it opens up for the people is when they are this divided at the top and when their ch- power internationally and the legitimacy of that is being challenged and when it is something that people are looking at. We have to pull that back and show that the choice is not between these fascists who want to lock in their, their, their white supremacist nightmare and use this defeat to further that, or choosing Biden and mainstream imperialism and the nightmare that that has always been for the people of the world and people here, but to actually rally forward the people from below to say, we need a different world, we need another way, and there is another way. And this is what Bob Avakian has forged in the new communism. And this is what the revolution tour, the Get Organized for an Actual Revolution tour, is calling people into right now that we don't have to choose between continuing to let the planet accelerate under the global domination of the U.S. and its, and its military around the world and the plunder to the environment that brings and the destruction to women everywhere that that brings and the, and the white supremacy and misogyny that's woven into this country and the, and the hatred towards immigrants that is fostered and is being whipped up now even more against people who are trying to get out of Afghanistan. If you click on Fox News or Tucker Carlson, that our interests are in getting rid of this empire and seizing this great defeat and this divide at the top to rally our side to get organized for an actual revolution. We're going to get into that in, in, uh, in a minute, but I want to remind people that you're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we're talking to Sansara Taylor. But I also wanted to get into this with you. Um, 
Okay, but, I want to uh, make sure we save the time to play this piece that we brought from. Well, do you, when do you want to play it now? We could do that. Okay, I think it's all right. Yeah. Okay. All, all right, right, so I'll say it. I, I brought. I asked Michael, <laughs> and Michael is. Uh, he, I think you shared my view on this. Is that one of the biggest things that is that keeps coming up? Is um, people keep using that word "we," talking about what we should have done in Afghanistan, what we should have, how we should have withdrawn all of this, and that we have to. I said this earlier, but we have to break with that sense of we, with the capitalist, imperialist, cutthroat gangsters who govern and rule over us and rule over the rest of the world. We have to break that. And so we brought this clip from Bob Avakian that is really, really, I just, I, I, it's a slamming clip and it helps kind of break us out of that. It's called the GTF. I don't want to say what it is. He'll mm -hmm. say what it is. But All I think right. it'd be helpful if we played it and then we could talk a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. And I'll tell you something. People that listen to this show oftentimes come up and talk about the things that they hear from Avakian. And that's been going on for 20 years, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is, which I think is extremely important for people to know, actually, anyway. So can we play that piece out now? All right. One of the biggest obstacles standing in the way and weighing people down is American chauvinism. The disgusting notion that America and Americans are better and more important than everybody else. This is a poison infecting people broadly in this country, even among the bitterly oppressed. And there is a great need for people to break with this American chauvinism. Free yourself from the GTF, the great tautological fallacy. A fallacy, an idea or way of thinking that is false, wrong. A tautology, a round in a circle way of reasoning that asserts something and then claims to prove it by merely asserting the same thing again. So the great tautological fallacy to which I am referring is the notion that America is a force for good in the world. And therefore, whatever it does is good, or at least done with good intentions. Even if the same thing, when done by other forces, especially by forces opposed to us, is bad, is evil, because, because America is a force for good in the world. Thus, in the grip of the great tautological fallacy, when one is told by the authorities and government and the media, etc., that North Korea developing a small number of nuclear weapons and a few long-range ballistic missiles poses a grave threat, one does not question. One does not ask why that is a grave threat, while the only country ever to use nuclear weapons, the United States, having thousands of nuclear weapons and the capability to use them anywhere in the world is somehow not a grave threat. Under the influence of the great tautological fallacy, one does not stop to think about the fact that in this situation, North Korea could only be developing this weaponry as an attempt to deter an attack from the United States. For North Korea's leaders know that if they initiated an attack, they would face massive, overwhelming retaliation. And from the point of view of the imperial rulers of the United States, such a possibility of deterrence is precisely the problem, because it could in some measure limit the ability of the U.S. to dominate and dictate. Once you remove the blinders of the great tautological fallacy, it can be seen that the free world simply means those parts of the world that are under the domination of 
or are friendly to the United States, no matter how monstrous their ruling classes may be. While the non-free world is made up of those who remain outside of, and especially those who oppose opposition or obstacles to the domination of the U.S. empire. The U.S. government wages war in Africa and Asia, as well as the Middle East, claiming it is fighting to defend civilization against the brutal and murderous Islamic fundamentalist jihadists. But the imperialists of the U.S. are certainly no less brutal and murderous, and the civilization they boast of is literally built on the blood and bones of people all over the world. And why is this Islamic fundamental, fundamentalism such a force now? Fundamentally, because of the workings of capitalist imperialism itself. Besides the overall role of imperialism in creating more favorable soil for these Islamic fundamentalists, actions of the U.S. imperialists have further fed their growth. In the 1980s, the U.S. actually armed and built up Osama bin Laden and other Islamic fundamentalists to strike at the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. In 2003, in violation of international law, the U.S. invaded Iraq to overthrow the head of government there, Saddam Hussein. This invasion was carried out under the cover of lies that Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction. This invasion and the occupation of Iraq by American forces that followed caused hundreds of thousands of deaths, set off bloody conflicts among the Iraqi people, and created more fertile ground for Islamic fundamentalist forces. And the same thing happened in Libya. Under the presidency of Barack Obama, and with the insistent urging of then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, the U.S. intervened in a conflict within Libya on the side of forces opposed to the longtime ruler Muammar Gaddafi. With the fall of Gaddafi, which was brought about mainly as a result of massive bombing of his forces by the U.S. and its allies, the rivalries and conflicts within Libya were intensified and Islamic fundamentalist forces gained strength. Or take the case of Iran. In 1953, the CIA engineered a coup that overthrew a popular government that was moving to nationalize the oil of the country so that it could be used for the, for the development of its economy instead of being controlled and plundered by the U.S. and Britain. This coup brought the Shah of Iran to power, and the people of Iran suffered decades of torment and torture at the hands of the Shah and his secret police. And here again, these actions of the U.S. created more favorable ground for the forces of Islamic fundamentalism, which ultimately seized power through the revolution that overthrew the Shah in 1979. These are only a few examples of the American crimes that have been committed and the kinds of consequences that have followed from these crimes in countries all over the world. And all this underlines the crucial importance of casting off the blinders of the great tautological fallacy and breaking with American chauvinism. We need to think about humanity first and above all. Think about humanity first and above all. That was Bob Avakian. And I can't say too much about Avakian and what he brings out to people. And I'm, you know, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, there's a whole 
there's a whole scenario that gets set up around, you know, what we can do, what we can't do, what's possible, what's desirable. And Avakian, when you listen to him talk, it's actually, it's something that comes straight through. It comes straight through around what's, you know, and like you're sitting there and if you're like me, you're like hitting your head saying, what? why didn't I think of that? <laughs> but no, but, you know, but the thing yeah. is, is that you're, you're, you're like, you're seeing something, uh, uh, an opening up of, of, an, of an understanding. And I think it's incredibly important that that happens because it's not, not because it, it's nice to have it happen, but it's so people can actually understand what to do to change the world mm -hmm. and what it's going to take and where do you have to go with this, you know? And I think it's one of the things that people cannot just brush to the side, you know? And I, I would basically, I would say, I dare you, come over <laughs> where we are right now, okay? Because this is something that actually people do have to live with. And quite frankly, looking at the way, I, and I'm not going to say, oh, well, it's a, it's a, given and never going to change, but there is a very real, very real bad, bad thing going on. And we could, there's nothing to say that we couldn't just, this planet couldn't just disintegrate in terms of it, the people that are here, that what, it, what it's able to, you know, hold up and all this other stuff. We are living in, we are living in a very dangerous time, but we also have, and this is one of the things that a vacuum brings to life. We also have the ability to step out and step up around trying to, to stop this. So I just wanted to make that as I was listening to it. So. Yeah. You know, Bob Avakian put out a piece recently at revcom.us. It's a really important new piece, very substantive, and I urge everybody to go to revcom.us and read it. It's called, This is a Rare Time When Revolution Becomes Possible. Why that is so and how to seize on this rare opportunity and it's a companion piece that builds on and goes more deeply into some of the things that have come up in relationship to a, another very momentous piece that was put out earlier this year by the Revcoms called A Declaration, A Call to Get Organized Now for a Real Revolution, also available at Revcom.us. And both of these documents are assessing that there, is, there really are two choices for humanity. Sure. We either live with all this, the horrors that are caused by capitalism, imperialism, and everything they fuel around the world. And let's be real, this system, U.S. imperialism, has not only brought horror and death and destruction to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to the people throughout that region, a million deaths it's caused, five, six million people displaced. It has also, as you just heard from Baba Vakin, strengthened the hand of Islamic fundamentalism with the nightmare that they, that, that brings to, especially to women. So... We either, that's one choice. We live with all this and let it all continue and get worse And if, if humanity has a future at all, or we make revolution. Or we get together and do the hard thing, the thing that requires sacrifice, but the only thing that measures up to humanity having a future worth living or possibly any future at all, and that is to get organized to overthrow this system and replace it with a radically better system, which Bob Avakian has also taken the responsibility to develop a framework for a constitution for the new socialist republic in North America, a path-breaking, liberating document, reality-based, dealing with the biggest contradictions, not just what we're against, but how we could do it better to actually overcome thousands of years of traditions, chains of oppression, of exploitation, to meet people's needs materially, but also intellectually, culturally, and to involve people in changing themselves while changing the world. This is a breakthrough for humanity, but those are our choices. And in these two documents that you find at Revcom.us, the declaration, the call to get organized now, underscore now for an actual revolution, and Bob Avakian's piece, this is a rare time when revolution becomes possible, why that is so and how to seize on this rare opportunity. Bob Avakian, after describing the horrors of this, of this world, he says, and the fact that it's worsening, 
He says, all this is reality and no one can escape this reality. Either we radically change it in a positive way or everything will be changed in a very negative way. And we're living in a time of conspicuous change. You see that in Afghanistan, people who had, I mean, look, it was bad with the U.S. in there, but they had a certain level of stability carved out in pockets of that country. It is ripped away in a, in a heartbeat and whole countries and regions descending into nightmare. In this country, normalcy is being disrupted in every realm. I mean, people after a year of home Zoom schooling, people trying to go back to school and there's there's mobs at the school board meetings assaulting parents because they advocate wearing masks. There's fascist anti-scientific lunatics out there spreading the virus and and opposing any attempt to contain it, they're, they're lashing out and getting teachers fired for daring to teach that this country was founded on slavery and let anybody know anything about the crimes that are still going on against black people. There are every realm of society is being ripped apart. And like B.A. says, this is reality. No one can escape this. Now, we either lie down to it and it goes very likely to a very even more nightmarish place, or we seize on this moment to step outside of our comfort zones and be part of bringing a better future for humanity, because those are the choices, and it's actually possible. And this is where, you know, just to underscore what you said, Bob Avakian stands out like no one else on this planet for seeing not just the horrors and not just on the surface what's going on, but why it's happening and how out of those very same contradictions there is the possibility through the conscious actions of people to wrench a different future, a different resolution and a revolution. And, and no one's done the work like this. And there's a way in for everybody. You know, this document, the declaration says people need to get together in person and online and get organized for a revolution and talk about why a revolution is needed, what it entails and what the new society is, is, could bring into being, lift our sights. And we're doing the revolution tour is doing Zoom discussions. Everybody's invited to come be part of that, to learn more about uh, the revolution that we need and that's possible and how we organize now and spread this. Most people do not know there is any way out and they're suffocating under the lack of any hope. And we've got to change that. We've got to be on a mission to change that and then to make that revolution real because humanity's time is actually, you know, we are really up against the ticking clock of this system that is destroying our planet and the lives of billions. And the reality is, is that there's going to be, there are two things that could happen at least. And you, know, you could, you know, talk about what you're talking about and people, if people, if humanity goes in that direction, there's a possibility of saving humanity. But if it doesn't, there's a surety in a certain sense of hell's going to be made to pay, you know, and, and people are going to be paying for, with, with the lives of millions of others. And, and who knows what will happen. <laughs> you know, one thing I would just mention for everybody listening as well, because I know we started on Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and um, there's more that needs to be said about it. There's, it's, it's a huge thing to understand. I want to, and then there's other things going on. I mentioned COVID. There, it's, it's, it's a fascist pandemic right. at this point being fueled and strengthened by these fascist governors who are blocking any mask mandates, yeah. who are, you know, taking away the rights of school districts to protect the children in the schools. There's all kinds of abortion rights are under fire. There's all kinds of topics I've touched on. Oh, we have a, a constitution for a whole different way the world could be written by Bob Avakin. Mm -hmm. All these things really merit further pursuit. And I wanted Absolutely. to point to two really important resources that are really the heartbeat of anybody serious trying to understand and change the world. And one is the website, revcom.us. It's the, it's the website of the revolution. 
And the other is the YouTube show that I co-host with Andy Z. He's the main host. Every Thursday night, it's on YouTube.com slash The Revcoms. And we put out a, a, a really powerful episode last night. Andy Z does a really extraordinary commentary on Afghanistan. It's more thorough and all-sided than we were able to fully explore today, which mm-hmm. is as it should be. We're doing a live radio show, but I recommend people watch it. It's at youtube.com slash the Subscribe, watch every week, spread the show. That's a big part of, you know, and watch the show with others and, and discuss it. That's a big part of getting organized for revolution is watching and reading these two outlets, revcom.us and the revcoms on YouTube. Okay, this is the Michael Slate Show, and we've been talking with Sansara Taylor, revolutionary co-host of the Revolution Nothing Less RNL show and writer for revcom.us. We're going to take a quick break and be right back, so stay tuned. All right, that was Outer National with Todos Somos Illegales. We are all illegals. James Lowen was the author of many books, including Lies My Teacher Told Me, which took on the racist, sexist, xenophobic history books that are still all too common. He was a fighter, using his pen and his voice to expose the true history of America, especially its long history of racism and genocide. This is The Michael Slate Show, and that was James Lowen, author, teacher, and fighter for the truth. And in the last years of his life, he gave numerous interviews about the South and the cause of the Civil War and the meaning of all these uh, Confederate monuments. I interviewed him about his book, The Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader, The Great Truth About the Lost Cause, which was published in 2010. James Lowen died last week at the age of 79, and I think he was probably still fighting to keep the truth flowing out. I really am pleased to welcome to the show my next guest, James Lowen. Now, Jim's been a a guest on the show a number of times before, and he's just come out with a new book, a book that he co-edited with Edward H. Sebesta. And the name of that book is The Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader, The Great Truth About the Lost Cause. It's an incredibly, I mean, really a fascinating book. And again, once again, he's kind of opened my eyes up with, uh, you know, basically his ruthlessly honest and searching approach to history. And really trying to make make sure that people are talking about history accurately. Jim's the author of Lies My Teacher Told Me, Everything Your American History Textbook Got Wrong, and Lies Across America, What Our Historic Sites Get Wrong. He's also the author of Teaching What Really Happened, How to Avoid the Tyranny of Textbooks, Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism, and a few other books, all of which number among my favorite books. Jim, welcome to the show. Glad to be with you. Okay, well, let's jump into this. As I said, this book was really kind of a... One, an eye-opener for me on many different levels. One, just the stuff that I learned, but also the kind of situation that you describe in the book. And I want you to tell people what the book is about and what compelled you to pull it together. Sure. Well, I had a, another aha experience just last Friday. Now, of course, the book came out uh, in August, and I wrote it before then. But this is the kind of thing that keeps happening. Uh, last Friday, I was keynoting the American Association for State and Local History which was meeting in Oklahoma City. Now, these are the folks who run history museums 
and historic houses and forts and stuff like that all across the U.S. So in the middle of my talk, I asked them, why did the South secede? Why did 11 states, beginning with South Carolina, leave the Federal Union? Well, there's always four answers you get, and they are the South seceded over slavery. The South seceded because of, uh, for states' rights. The South seceded because of the election of Lincoln, and the South seceded over tariffs and taxes or issues about tariffs and taxes. So I said, okay, let's vote. And my one-liner is, uh, unlike Chicago, you can only vote once. <laughs> All right, everybody laughed, and then we proceeded to vote. And what happened was another one of these, we might call them an aha experience for me, only they've really become an oh-no experience. This time, more than 80% of the group voted states' rights. Now, states' rights always wins. Uh, when I do it with groups of teachers, it gets 60 to 75% of the vote. Uh, but here with historic site managers, it got at least 80%. Now, as you can already infer, that's not the right answer. <laughs> um, let me, can I read from one of these documents? Sure, definitely. These folks just haven't ever read the documents, and the documents are never included, not even a phrase from them, is included in American history textbooks that you have in high school. So the very first state to leave the Union was, of course, South Carolina, and they left it on Christmas Eve, 150 years ago this Christmas. And here's why. They say why. Quote, we assert that 14 of the states have deliberately refused for years past to fulfill their constitutional obligations, and we refer to their own statutes for the proof. Now, that sounds vague, constitutional obligations, but they go right on to tell us what they're talking about. They go on, the Constitution of the United States, in its fourth article, provides as follows, quote, no person held a service or labor in one state under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. Well, that is, of course, the Fugitive Slave Clause. Mm -hmm. And so it's beginning to look like slavery might be the right answer. And then they go on to talk about states' rights. And amazingly enough, they are against states' rights. And they tell us exactly which states <clears throat> and which rights upset them. And, for instance, they say, the states of Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, and they name all the states going out to Iowa. Uh, all these states have enacted laws which either nullify the acts of Congress or render useless any attempt to execute them. And they go right back to the fugitive slave problem. And then they talk about, for example, the state of New York. Now, New York no longer allows what's called slavery transit. So this was a kind of idea, for instance, that a, um, well, let's suppose you're a rich family in Charleston. And you don't want to spend August in Charleston. You want to spend it maybe watching Broadway plays. But you don't want to do your own uh, cooking, so you want to bring your cook along. Well, New York says, uh-uh, we're trying to be a free state. If you bring a slave into New York, she becomes free. Well, South Carolina is outraged at this. They're outraged as well with New England because the New England states let blacks vote. Well, who votes in America was a state's right until the 15th Amendment gets passed two whole eras after this. But nevertheless, South Carolina takes it upon themselves to say, this is another reason we're seceding. These people are letting blacks vote. It's an outrage. So in other words, it's all about slavery and about the connecting thing with slavery, namely white supremacy. And it has nothing at all to do with states' rights, except that the southern states are against states' rights. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very important point you make. And, you know, one of the things that you talk about, too, and you just sort of briefly mentioned this, but that this is, you know, there's all these other forces in society. You talk about historic site managers, you, but you also mentioned in your book even things like like the National Archives website and yep. and teachers who really have, they, they are com- they're teaching things that are completely untrue about what was behind the Civil War. Yep. And, you know, and then textbooks. And that really kind of, that really sort of sits in your stomach and then just makes let, you sick. Let me mention even, a, in a way, a worse one, because it's so blatant. Many folks in California have become naturalized citizens, right? They mm-hmm. came in from Mexico or Vietnam or wherever they came in from as non-citizens. And then in order to become a citizen, you have to pass a history test, among other things. Mm-hmm. This is 100 multiple choice questions. Each of them has one right answer, except for one question. The question, why did the southern states secede? And that one, they allow two right answers. Either the right answer, slavery, or if you say the wrong answer, states' rights, they count that right too. So it's the only question on this federal test that has two right answers. And that right there shows the power of what we call the neo-Confederates even today. Let me remind listeners that you're tuned into The Michael Slate Show, and I'm your host, Michael Slate, and we're talking today with James Lowen. He's the co-editor of a new book called The Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader, The Great Truth About the Lost Cause. But I wanted to, to pursue this thing about the textbooks a little bit because, sure. you know, and it's related to what you just said. You know, in the book, you sort of cite a certain amount of relativism in the presentation of what was the cause of the Civil War, like you're saying right now with this these two possible correct answers. Yeah. You know, and they come out and there's a thing where people are saying even you can't know for sure what was really the cause of the Civil War. And you can too. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I agree with you. And you yeah. present a few reasons why this happens though, because it's very, you know, it, it's should give people pause to think that the textbooks are being written from a standpoint of you can't know for sure. And like you said, yeah. you can too. Why do you think the textbooks are written like this? They don't want to offend anybody. And you know, it's interesting. Like when I speak. I speak all over the country. And when I speak in Columbia, South Carolina, for instance, um, I usually speak about what we get wrong about the Civil War and secession. Uh, You know, I have a talk, for instance, about what we get wrong about the American Indians and and about the Pilgrims, but I save that for Massachusetts um, because I don't want to pull any punch, you know. Um, And people come and they listen. And even people like the Sons of Confederate Veterans, they come, they then ask questions. I don't think I've convinced them all, but they at least listen. But the textbook publishers are too timid to do that. And so they don't want, they imagine that they might lose an adoption. And all of the southern states adopt statewide. Uh, most infamously, of course, Texas adopts statewide. It's a more or less southern state. And uh, the publishers certainly don't want to offend Texas. And saying just flatly that the South seceded for slavery might offend somebody. So let's not say that. And they'll say, well, historians debate why the, Southern, why the Confederacy left the Union. Uh, some say slavery, some states' rights, issues about tariffs, the election of Lincoln. They'll say all four of those in, in one paragraph. And they will never quote a document to support their position. And I think the key reason is because all of the documents support only one position, and that's slavery. Well, they do mention the election of Lincoln. That's for sure. But they're upset with the election of Lincoln because Lincoln represents a new party which is against slavery. So it all comes back to the S-word in the end. 
You know, one of the things that you mentioned in this, um, in the book, is you, you give about four reasons, and I really wanted to try and zero in on, on at least a couple of them, because one of them is you say, or maybe just this one, but you say that there's actually this point of not wanting to offend anybody, as you've just been talking about. And, yep. you know, I just spoke with Peter Ward, who um, he's an environmental writer. He writes on uh, climate change and melting of the ice caps, and he's also a paleontologist. And he was talking about the terrible time he has in trying to get what he's discovered or uncovered about the truth about global warming and the rest of this and climate change and trying to get it out there, he gets a lot of flack. And he said that actually he's found that there's a tremendous amount of scientific reticence among scientists who who are basically censoring themselves because they don't want to step out of the flock. They don't want to put themselves out there, not just because of the crude reason of I won't get you know research money, but also because they don't want to take the chance of being out there as the point man for something that is going to attract a lot of flack in society in general. Do you think that's also true in relation to these textbooks and how they're being written? And the fact that teachers even won't go to the sources that you have proven through this really impressive collection of Confederate and neo-Confederate documents that actually show the truth. Do you think that that, that kind of reticence is also operational here? Sure. I, I'd still just call it under the general heading of timidity. Um, but yeah, they, they don't want to be the one textbook that gets off of um, Tennessee, for instance, adopts every competent book just about in American history. And actually, Tennessee would not knock a book out for this reason, I don't think. But uh, publishers imagine they might, you know, so let's not say it. Yeah, and you see, and that's the, that's the problem is when you're dealing with the question of seeking the truth, it's a big problem because if you're if you're going to then present and present to others, and especially in the, you know involving textbooks and teachers, you would think that the purpose is to bring the truth to people in the classrooms. And yeah, especially because the darn books are so huge. You know, uh, the second edition of Lies My Teacher Told Me came out about three years ago, and fo- and it'll be the last edition. I can assure everyone, uh, I'm not going to read any more of these textbooks. They're such a near death experience. For that edition, I read six more of these books, and they've actually gotten longer. Uh, They now average 1,152 pages. And yet, with all those pages, they don't quote any documents or almost no documents. For example, one of them actually has two whole paragraphs about uh, Bryan's famous cross of gold speech, William Jennings Bryan's uh, cross of gold speech. These two leaden paragraphs written by whoever writes these textbooks, it isn't usually the names that are on them, only use three words from Bryan, and those are cross of gold. Now, William Jennings Bryan is a powerful writer, you know. He writes something like, um, thou shalt not press down upon labor's brow this crown of thorns. Thou shalt not crucify mankind on a cross of gold. Any 11th grader, any 6th grader could understand that better than they can understand the, the words of the textbook writers. But they don't quote them. And so they have this tradition of not quoting. They could just hide behind the documents. I think that'd be just fine. You know, let South Carolina tell you why it seceded. South Carolina is quite upfront about it. Well, let's dig into this because actually the point that you make in the book and what you show through all these documents is exactly what you're saying. They're upfront about this. There's the question of the Confederacy was really about, the Civil War was really about the preservation of slavery as an economic system, and then all the ideological trappings that go along with that, racism and white supremacy and so on. And, you know, the, the part of the problem or part of the thing that comes up here is, so you've mentioned in your most recent book what really happened. You get into the question of historiography, and I'm, I'm yes. curious as to how that applies to this situation. Oh, it does indeed. That's a good question. And we, the reason our book is titled The Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader is because we don't just have documents from the Confederacy period itself. After the Civil War ends, of course, we have Reconstruction. And now the, the, the same people, in this case, they're still Confederates. We might call them ex-Confederates because you can't be a Confederate anymore. But uh, 
they still want to maintain their point of view. They can't maintain slavery because that was ended by the 13th Amendment. But they certainly can maintain white supremacy, which is, of course, the handmaiden of slavery. And so they do. I mean, at the end of Reconstruction, they reimpose white supremacy. And then in 1890, beginning with Mississippi, all of the southern states proceed to keep blacks from voting, quote, legally, unquote. I mean, it's really illegal because it's all a violation of the 14th and 15th Amendments, but the U.S. doesn't do anything about it, and so they actually do it, quote, legally. Well, this sets in motion what we call the nadir. Some people pronounce it nadir, N-A-D-I-R. We're not talking Ralph. Uh, <laughs> the nadir of race relations. And this is the period 1890 to 1940 when the U.S. goes more racist in its ideology and its thinking than at any other point in our history. And it's during this time then that the neo-Confederates, and we have to call them neo-Confederates now because most of the Confederates are dead. We're talking 1890 to 1940. It's a new generation. But they still maintain elements of the Confederate line. They certainly maintain the emphasis on white supremacy. And now they actually rename the Civil War, and they no longer call it the Civil War. Now is when it gets called the War Between the States. And now, 1890 to 1940, is when they start making the claim that secession was for states' rights. And so if you just page through our book, you can see the reasons for secession changing as you go through the years and as you go through the pages. I was going to ask you about that in terms of the through line between the Confederates and the Neo-Confederates. It's, you know, this, this point about maintaining this notion of white supremacy and the inferiority of black people to white people. It's not that they're still fighting the Civil War in one sense, but in another sense, they are still fighting. And it's not so much to reinstitute slavery, but it does this question of actually maintaining the, 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 the domination of black people, the subordinate position of black people and the domination of them by white people in relation to the whole political and economic setup certainly seems to be serviced by this continuation of that understanding of the Civil War. And, you know, one thing a lot of people don't realize, a lot of younger people don't have any idea that the Republicans weren't always the party of white supremacy, as they now are. In the 19th century, the Democrats were the party of white supremacy. And they said so, and they called themselves the white man's party well into the 1920s. But in 1964, the, the two parties completed a, a flip-flop on this matter. And as one of the actual documents in our book... We show two maps of votes for president for Abraham Lincoln in 1860 and then for John Kerry in 2004. And by gosh, the same states that Abraham Lincoln carried, John Kerry carried, with only three exceptions. Lincoln carried Iowa, Ohio, and Indiana, and Kerry didn't manage to carry them. But the map looks almost identical. So the people, it's a flip-flop then, of the people who supported Kerry were, in their antecedent generations, the people who supported Lincoln. Let me remind listeners that you're tuned into The Michael Slate Show, and I'm your host, Michael Slate, and we're talking today with James Lowen. He's the co-editor of a new book called The Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader, The Great Truth About the Lost Cause. Now, let's talk about the relevance of all this for today. You know, I have to tell you, when my son was growing up, I was living in Washington, Washington, D.C., and one of the things that happened, here we were living in a majority black city, and yes. the neighborhood we were in, it was majority black and immigrant, and my son was really deep into watching the Dukes of Hazard. Yes. 
and he wasn't the only one in the neighborhood, and he wasn't the only nationality, you know, in the neighborhood yeah. in terms of you know watching it. It was actually all all the kids. They all went out and they got big wheels. They used to call them the king. Yeah, and I think what we have to do is we have to tell your readers that the Dukes of Hazard drove around in this red car that had a Confederate flag painted on its roof. That's exactly I where knew I was that's going. Where you're going. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And my son got a big wheels that came complete with Confederate flags to stick all over the place, patches, all this stuff. He was so irate when I told him he was not going to put that on there. And But it just struck me in thinking about this because at that time there was that thing going on. And then I remember at the same time there was the struggle to have Martin Luther King's birthday declared a holiday. And at one point, Virginia opted yeah. to, they said, okay, we'll do it, but we're going to do it on the same day as Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson Day. Yep. Yep. You know, and to me, you know, it really fits in a lot with what you're actually pointing out in this book. Yep. At this point, the neo-Confederates have, in terms of any explicitness, they've kind of given up on white supremacy. And so the, the most recent document we include in the book, actually, is Republican Governor Sonny Perdue of Georgia, his proclamation of Confederate History Month two years ago. And, of course, like all proclamations, it's got all these whereases. But it's very interesting. The, the number one whereas in there is this one. Whereas among those who served the Confederacy were many African Americans, both free and slave, who saw action in the Confederate Armed Forces in many combat roles. Well, that's not true. That's flatly not true. It's less true than the idea that there's a whole bunch of Jewish officers in Hitler's army, which actually was true. There were almost no, there were no blacks in combat roles in the Confederate army who were known to be black until three weeks before the end of the war. And the reason there weren't is because the Confederate policy wouldn't allow it. And so we include these documents that we don't allow no blacks. And then we furthermore include the document three weeks before Richmond gets liberated where they change their minds. And so why, the question comes up, why would Sonny Perdue write something that's so completely false? And I think the answer is, the reason it goes like this. Look, you people, we're going to celebrate Confederate Heritage Month, and we all should celebrate it because it couldn't have been about slavery. It couldn't have been about white supremacy because, look, all these black folks fought on our side. See? It's a non sequitur, but besides that, it didn't happen. But let me ask you this, the, the point about white supremacy. I know what you're saying in terms of they sort of similarly to how the neo-Confederates had to back off of actually doing the thing around, well, we were about slavery and we did think slavery was important and all this, and they couldn't really make that the central argument point. But they could then get into white supremacy. And, you know, you saw it in a lot of different ways where they were talking about they were so upset. All the way up into the 1970s, they were still arguing about the natural stupidity of black people. Oh, yeah. And it's developed over the course of time. But it seems to me it's a little hard, I think, to say that they have given up on promotion of white supremacy because you look oh, at I this Oh, I still thing. think that's, that's their goal. It's certainly the goal of the Council of Concerned Citizens, for instance, exactly. which is yeah. uh, one of the primary neo-Confederate organizations around right now. And people who are in the sense of Confederate veterans fall into two groups, I think, the, the white supremacists and people who, who lost family members generations ago, admittedly, but still, in the Confederate Army, and they want to mainly honor them. And, and I appreciate that that's a different frame of mind. But there's something dangerous about the whole states' rights claim. And what's dangerous about it is that it has converted the Confederacy into kind of a David against Goliath, romantic figure with whom we wish to identify. And this has several payoffs to today. Let me just mention a couple of them. I was just, as I mentioned, I think, I was just in Oklahoma City at this meeting. And, of course, Oklahoma City, about 10 years ago, was the site of this horrific bombing of the federal building, the Murrah office building. The number one guy who did it, Timothy McVeigh, he was photographed, arrested, I think, and certainly photographed for his mugshot wearing a T-shirt. And it was a neo-Confederate T-shirt. And the T-shirt says, it has a picture of Abraham Lincoln in the front, and it says, Sic Semper Tyrannus, thus always with tyrants, 
which is, of course, what John Wilkes Booth yelled on the stage of Ford's Theater when he, right after he killed him. And so McVeigh is identifying with Booth. McVeigh is saying, we should kill the president. We mm-hmm. should kill our leaders. Well, you're hearing that from some of the fallout members of the Tea Party folks. This woman in Nevada says, you know, bring your guns to, to Washington and, and so on. And there is talk about secession by candidates for governor in Georgia, by the governor of Texas, by Mr. Sarah Palin, if you will, when he was a member of the Alaska First Party. That's a secessionist party in Alaska. And it's not necessarily totally harmless. I mean, the folks in Oklahoma City don't think this ideology is harmless one bit. One of the things your book pointed out to me that I had no idea and hadn't really followed, and I'm sure, again, if I had really looked into it, as you say, the documents are there. What is the name of the uh, journal, The Southern Partisan? And then there's the the book by the Kennedy. I guess they're brothers. Yes, these are two neo-Confederate Kennedys. Right. The The South was right. The South was right. Right. I was going to say that's the basic premise of their book. And also this guy, Frank Connor. These are things that still play a very, not just, you know, symbolic role in American politics today, but actually some of these people have direct links to whether it's the Christian fundamentalist movement or McCain's campaign or any of these things. They do. They do. Trent Lott was tied in with them. Of course, he's out of politics now, but he wasn't. He was minority leader of the Senate, sometimes majority leader, depending on which side James Jeffers was on. All right, Jim, one last question here. Speaking from your heart, from the very bottom of your heart, the importance of this book today and why people should pick this thing up. Here's what I want folks to do. And I don't usually flog my books. They seem to do okay without it. But I want folks, including black folks, to buy this book with what we usually call the Confederate flag on the cover. Uh, It's the the battle flag, anyway. Mm -hmm. And I want them to buy it and read it and keep it nice. Don't mark in it. Make your notes on the side on a piece of paper. And then take it to your nearby public high school and give it to your kid's history teacher or your own history teacher if you're young enough to have already just graduated from high school. Hit them upside the head with it and say, look, it's been 150 years. It's time to stop lying. It's time to get this right. It does make a difference. And then, by gosh, maybe we can change these historic sites, for instance, by simply having visitors go who know better and, and who hit them upside the head with this book and say, no, no. You cannot make it about states' rights anymore. That is a white supremacist myth. It removes the number one issue, uh, which was race and slavery, from its position at the center of American history, and it just won't do anymore. Jim Lowen talking about the Confederate and Neo-Confederate reader, The Great Truth About the Lost Cause. This is The Michael Slate Show, and that was James Lowen, author, teacher, and fighter for the truth. And that brings us to the end of yet another show. I want to thank my assistant producer, Henry Carson, my production assistant, Jeff Pryor, and each and every one of you for tuning in. If you want to share your thoughts and ideas about the show, or if you want to volunteer to be part of the show, write to me at mslate at themichaelslateshow.com. Once again, that's mslate at themichaelslateshow.com.